Hello my lovelies and welcome to another episode of Primed for Crime. I am your host, Liv, and I'm very excited to have you here and I really hope you enjoy today's case. So today I'm going to be talking about the unsolved murders of the Oakland County children and this case has been dubbed one of the most disturbing cases you've ever heard of. For a year, the families of Oakland County lived in fear of a mysterious predator preying on young children. The far murders involved locations across eight towns within two counties and to this day it has never been solved. But before we get into the case today, I just want to state that everything I talk about is information that I have found online and I mean no disrespect to anybody involved or mentioned. I will also state that today's episode involves mention of child murders and the sexual assault of minors. So if this is something that you aren't comfortable listening to at the moment, then please feel free to click out of this podcast. So, let's begin. This is the Oakland County Children Murders. So we're literally going to jump straight into this case and we begin on February 15th 1976 when 12 year old Mark Stebbins left the Ferndale Michigan American Legion to walk home at about 1.30 in the afternoon and Mark loved to visit the Legion and he did this on the regular so it wasn't really unusual to see him walking about here. However after about an hour Mark's older brother who was called Mike noticed that he'd been gone a little bit too long. Like, he realised that something was wrong. This wasn't like his brother. And by that evening, police were informed and they immediately started conducting door-to-door searches of the Ferndale area in search for Mark, but unfortunately nobody knew anything. And sadly, just four days later, Mark's body was found, fully clothed, lying in a snowbank, and he was found just less than a mile from his home. An autopsy was quickly conducted, and according to the report, Mark had sadly been smothered to death, but there were also rope burns around his neck, wrists, and ankles. Evidence suggested that poor Mark had also been sodomised, which... It's just awful. You know, I don't even want to really think about that, but I just... He's a child. (laughs) A literal child. But there was also evidence that he had received some sort of care. He showed no signs of malnourishment and he'd carefully been, like, bathed, like, washed. Somebody had washed his body and put his clothes back on. After the police followed the few tips that they did have, in the end months passed with no solid leads and the case soon went cold and poor Mark's death faded from the public eye. But just months later, on December 22nd, 1976, in Royal Oak, Michigan, another 12-year-old, Jill Robinson, left home on her bike after a heated argument with her mother, which, you know, I think most 12-year-olds can relate to. I mean, especially little 12-year-old me. Um, so it wasn't. this wasn't unusual, especially with tensions high leading up to Christmas. And Jill often ran off angry with her mum. And her mum would just let her go, believing that she'd be back soon. 
So on this day, when Jill left on her bike, as her mum suspected, she rode in the direction of her dad's house, Tom, who only lived a few miles away. And this was also corroborated by a family friend who had seen Jill pedalling her bike heading north around 7.30pm, which would have been about an hour after that she'd left home. But I mean, an hour? An hour bike ride? That, I mean, maybe it's just me. I mean, I come from a really small village and literally if I went to ride my bike, it was up and down the street, you know what I mean? An hour, that's a long time, especially for a 12-year-old. Um, but unfortunately, this was the last time that Jill was seen alive. And just like Mark, four days after she left, on the Boxing Day morning, Jill's body was found on the side of the highway. But unlike Mark, Jill had been shot in the face and reports also stated that she had not been sexually abused. Jill was found fully clothed, still with her backpack on, but strangely, evidence showed that her clothes had been washed. And just like Mark, she was also well-fed, and other than the gunshot wound, there were a lot of similarities to Mark's case. It's um, since been said that Jill was likely suffocated as well, and the shot was simply a reaction to regular post-mortem phenomena. So basically, a retired police officer who was called Jack um, Kalfleisch, Kalfleisch, um, who worked on the case, explained, quote, When a person is suffocated, there's still a certain amount of oxygen in the lungs. I believe when she was dropped onto the side of the highway, the pressure on the backpack caused her to make a moaning sound as that oxygen escaped. At this point, the killer shot her to make sure that she was still dead, end quote. Which, I guess, does make sense, or would make sense. I mean, it's science, so yeah, and if that's the reaction, then I suppose, yeah, I I can see that. There were also a few witnesses that reported seeing a blue Pontiac Le Mans stopped by the side of the road where the body was found, and that is a car, um, for any of my audience that don't know, because I certainly did not. Uh, Detective Cal Fleisch tried his best to get a lead followed on this, but unfortunately this was unsuccessful. So it was around this time that 10-year-old Christy Milik from Berkeley, Michigan, asked her mum if she could walk to a 7-Eleven to go and buy a magazine. And at first her mum, Debbie, said, absolutely not, not on your own. But Christine just begged and begged and was pretty persistent until her mum allowed her to go. So Christine left home at about 3pm and when an hour passed without her return, her mum, Debbie, just brushed it off, you know, thinking, oh, maybe her dad had gone and picked her up and forgot to call, you know, trying to rationalise in her mind that her child was okay. But hours and hours passed and when Christine still wasn't home, Debbie decided to call the police. So about, well, between 3 and 6pm, Christine had been abducted whilst walking home from the 7-Eleven. And Christine's disappearance was just days after Jill Robinson's body had been found. So obviously her mum was absolutely worried sick. Like I could not even imagine, especially knowing that information as well. 
So obviously she's desperate to find Christine alive and police departments across Oakland County formed a task force of around 50 or 60 men. But despite receiving hundreds of tips, they just had no solid leads. And during the 19 days that Christine was missing, her mother went on local television and begged Christine's captor to let her daughter go. The family's neighbours also raised $17,000, hoping that this money could be used as a ransom payment for Christine's release. But unfortunately, on January 21st, 1977, Christine's body was found on the side of a road in Franklin, Michigan by a US Postal Service letter carrier called Jerome. And again, autopsy reports revealed similarities to Jill and Mark's death. Christine had also been bathed and fed just like the first two and like Jill, Christine had not been sexually assaulted. The cause of death was found to be suffocation, just like the other murders, and by this point, police were like, hmm, oh shit, you know, this could be a serial killer. And it's also found that Christine's captor had only killed her less than 24 hours before her body was found, which would mean that she was kept, if this is true, she would have been kept for 18 days. She would have been alive for 18 days, been held somewhere. That it's just so hard to wrap your mind around, especially how old was she? 10? 10 years old. And ugh, no, I can't. The final confirmed victim of this killer was 11-year-old Timothy King from Birmingham, Michigan. Now, Tim had borrowed 30 cents from his sister and decided to walk to a pharmacy just a few blocks away from his home. And by now, I think you can probably guess, he was never seen alive again. But two days later, a woman called up the police and told them that she had witnessed the child talking to a man by a blue gremlin which, again, is also a car. And, um, yeah, so that turned into the huge manhunt, or maybe rather a car hunt, and hundreds of these gremlin cars were stopped and searched, but there was still no sign of Timothy. Detective Clavfleisch, who worked closely on Tim's case, now believes that the investigators could have made a huge mistake in solely focusing all their efforts on this gremlin car. I mean, if you think about it, it's very similar to when I talked about Jill Dando's case and all the efforts to find this blue Range Rover. And he thought this, though, because the blue gremlin may not have been a gremlin at all. I mean, evidence suggests that the police had misinformation. He analysed impressions taken from cars at the site of Christine's body and found that absolutely 100% it matched a Pontiac Tempest, not a gremlin. And a witness who saw the car that likely dumped Jill's body on the highway also reported seeing a Pontiac Le Mans, which looked very similar to a Tempest model. And finally, Chris King, who was Tim's brother, admitted he returned to the pharmacy hours later to search further for his brother and found that a blue gremlin was indeed parked in the car park, but it'd been there all day and this was shown by weather evidence on the car. 
A psychological profile of the killer was also released and it stated that they believed they were looking for an individual who matched the following. A white male aged 25 to 30 who had a compulsion for cleanliness could have also been a professional worker um, or a worker that children would trust, a resident of Oakland County who was above average intelligent and white collar class. Now, Tim's parents, Marion and Barry, pleaded with this killer on public news and begged for their son to come home, and they promised him his favourite meal, which was fried chicken. And six days later, on March 22nd, Tim was found in a snowbank in Wayne County, which was the only location that was not in Oakland County and autopsy revealed that he had been suffocated, molested and meticulously cleaned just like the others. But the most, well, I guess horrifying bit about Tim's case is in the autopsy it showed that he had been fed his favourite meal, fried chicken, just hours before he died and Oh God, that just sends chills down my spine. I mean, this means that the killer must have seen his parents plea on TV. He would have seen how hurt his family were, but still decided to end this poor boy's life. It's just absolutely unbelievable. So overall, now we have four murders, which involved eight different locations across two counties. Another detective called Corey Williams received this case in 2005 and he believes that the killer could have been trying to confuse police by requiring cross-department cooperation. So basically, like, if he had killed in different locations, it would mean that different police departments would be involved and, you know, they might, they might not all share the same knowledge or insight, might not link cases together, etc. But thankfully, this wasn't the case in this case. But on December 15th 1978 the task force actually shut down after no solid leads and no arrests were made. But I know what you're thinking, you know, Liv, there's bound to be some suspects and you guess right, it must be a lucky day because this case has its fair share of suspects and different theories and I'm going to walk you through some of them right now. Okay, so the first theory comes from Oakland psychiatrist Dr. Bruce L. Danto who during the killings talked very publicly about this case in local newspapers. And after Christine's murder, it was believed, I mean, by Dr Danto at least, that the killer might have been attempting to contact him because her body was found along Bruce Lane. Bruce Lane, Bruce L. Danto. I mean, okay, it could just be a weird coincidence. Yeah, it could just be a weird coincidence. But Danto later revealed that he'd also gotten a letter from a man calling himself Alan. And this so-called Alan wrote in this letter, quote, I am desperate and nearly gone crazy. This is for real. I know who the killer is. I live with him. I am his slave, end quote. And this Alan man insisted that his roommate Frank was the killer and that he was forced to stay with the children in the apartment during the day. 
Now, following this, Alan asked Danto to leave a secret message in the newspaper, and I'm not entirely sure what this message actually was, but it must have worked because Danto received a call from a man claiming to be Alan, and the two planned to meet at a gay bar where Alan had promised he would show photographic evidence in exchange for immunity. So off Danto pops down to this bar and during the course of the night a man did approach Danto and the police officers multiple times but it was as if he wanted to talk but wasn't sure and would kind of walk away like keep going up to them walking away and the police who went with Danto said that officially this Alan guy never showed but it could be true that this mysterious man they saw could have been him but after this nothing more came of it. So, the second theory is about a man called Arch Sloan, and this came about following the first killing of Mark, and the police task force officer, Lorne Doan, received a tip from a local parole officer, basically saying, you know, there's this 34-year-old man called Arch Sloan, and you need to check him out, basically. And Sloan, who, um, Sorry, every time I say his name, all I can think about is Mark Sloan from Grey's Anatomy. But he's definitely not McSteamy. 100% definitely not. So, Arch Sloan, not McSteamy, worked as a volunteer firefighter. Sorry. And at the time, it was thought that the killer could have been some sort of authority figure. You know, flash a badge and it's likely to gain the trust of especially children and convince them to listen. And this is also thought because in the autopsies there weren't any signs of struggle in any way, so that would therefore suggest that they did go willingly. And on top of this, Sloane lived in a trailer, so theoretically he could conceivably keep a child hidden for days, and not only this, but being mobile could have been a huge factor, especially seeing on a map where the children went missing versus where their bodies were found. And I've actually had a look at the map. I've, you know, you can find it on Google if you do want to go and have a look. And the gaps are pretty big. There are big gaps between all of them. And just a little side note, Sloan had also been previously convicted for sodomy, which was also a factor in these cases. And at the time, police lifted hairs from his car, but with no way to sequence the DNA at the time, there was no evidence that ever tied him to these murders. However, in 2007, the evidence was rediscovered, originally labelled as debris in the police files, And this brought a whole new light to the case. And in March 2009, the DNA returned as a match to three hairs found on the first and fourth victim, which would have been Mark and Tim. I mean, yay for science, right? That is amazing. I mean, it is years later, but the fact that they were able to still have these hairs and still manage to DNA them, you know, that is that is pretty good going. But, yes, I'm sorry, there is a but, it was revealed that the DNA of the hairs did not match Arch Sloan's nuclear DNA, which if I'm honest, I'm not entirely sure what that means, I'm not very good at science, but my guess would be that the hairs were somebody else's, but Sloan's DNA was found on it? I don't know, maybe, 
I mean, if you do know what this means, then honestly, please tell me because I tried to Google it, but I couldn't really get a clear answer. Um, so yeah, let me know if you know what that means. But I do think it means that there was someone's hair that his DNA was on. I, yeah. <laughs> the task force assistant commander, David Robertson, tried to coerce Sloan into revealing who this passenger was by keeping the fact that the DNA was not a match to Sloan a secret. Sloan then undertook a polygraph and failed whenever Tim was referenced. But unfortunately, in 2012, prosecutor Jessica Cooper made a political move around re-election time that ruined the task force's plan. Again, I'm not entirely sure what happened, but I think it meant that the task force was shut down, I think. But as a result of this, Cooper turned to the public for help in trying to identify whose hair they had and blowing up the lie that Sloan was connected to the crimes by DNA evidence. And when this came out, Sloan refused to speak, even when he was offered immunity, and we will come back and revisit this mysterious passenger shortly. But we're next going to get on to the next suspect in this case, who was a man from Kalamazoo called Vincent Gunnels. 2009 analysis of DNA from the hair that was found on the blouse of Christine was a mitochondrial match to Gunnels. And just a side note, a mitochondrial mitochondrial match is when DNA matches the same direct line on maternal ancestors. But during the time of the murder, Gunnels would have only been about I think 15, 16 I read, just a little bit older than the male victims and he himself was actually molested and was associated with two men called Christopher Bush and Gregory Green who were also suspects in these cases and again we will come back to this I promise. And Gunnels is currently in prison for drug-related crimes, but has never been charged with any sort of criminal sex crime. And when questioned about this evidence of DNA, Gunnels, who was then aged 47, denied knowing the victim and was at a loss about the hair. He said he had no idea how this DNA came onto Christine's body. And in November 2012, Barry King, who was Timothy's dad was sent details of a polygraph test taken by Gunnels on July 30th, 2009, and he managed to get this after a freedom of information request. In the test, Gunnels was asked three questions in relation to the DNA that was found on Christine's body. He was asked if he participated in her killing, if he knew for certain who had killed Christine, And finally, if he had had physical contact with the victim, and in the words of the examiner, Gunnels completely failed the test. And when he was told this, he just replied with, oh. Gunnels wasn't charged in relation to the Oakland County child killers case, and for reasons unknown, he is no longer considered a suspect by law enforcement. And he's continued to state publicly his innocence in relation to this case. And those who believe in Gunnell's involvement lean more to him being more of an accomplice to the others instead of him being the actual killer himself. 
Next on the suspect list is a man named Ted Lamborghini, who many people do think is responsible for the killings. So Detective Williams was exploring transcripts of interviews with the paedophile called Richard Lawson when he stumbled across a potential clue. So this Lawson guy had been helping police identify paedophiles at the time and during his interview he stated, quote, I know who did the Michigan snow killings, end quote. But later, he completely denied this and recanted his statement, saying, quote, That's not what I said. I said I might know who was involved. End quote. And eventually, Lawson gave up the name of Ted Orr, which in the end turned out to be a fake name. Surprise, it's Ted Lamborghini. Um who in 2005 was tracked down and insisted that he was innocent and told people that he wanted to take a polygraph test where he did admit he was a paedophile but still claimed that he had nothing to do with the case. And yep, you absolutely guessed it, he also failed the test miserably but of course he had an excuse. He claims that the only reason that he had failed was because he was scared. Scared. And yep, he he refused to take another polygraph test because he was scared. And when Detective Williams accused him of hiding something by saying, quote, You didn't fail that polygraph because you were afraid. You failed that polygraph because you killed those kids. End quote. Lamborghini just replied with, quote, God's forgiven me, end quote, which I, I don't know about you, but if you ask me, that kind of sounds a little bit like a confession. It does. That sounds like a confession. Um, but not only this, but he also fit the profile of the killer. He admitted to molesting other children and then forcing them into a tub to get rid of any possible DNA evidence which, if you remember, police found that the children had been fully washed and said that the police profile, in the police profile of this killer, they said that he was probably a very cleanliness-orientated person. So this puzzle just nicely seems to be fitting together. The task force at the time were able to track down one of his victims, who said that he was almost suffocated by Lamborghini. And I mean, that's pretty chilling and an eerily similar match um, surrounding the deaths of the four children. And Lamborghini is currently serving time for other sex crimes and refuses to say more about the case. In January 25th, 1977, the police task force officer Lorne Doan received a tip from Flint, Michigan's police department saying that they had a suspect in custody for a separate case who was claiming they knew who the killer was. And who was this man? It's none other than Gregory Green, who was the man who allegedly molested and was associated with Vincent Gunnels. So Gregory Green was a 27-year-old man who had been arrested for molesting a boy in Flint. And Green claimed that his friend Christopher Bush was the killer. And Bush was the son of a wealthy General Motors executive and it's known that both of these men were convicted paedophiles. 
And when Bush was actually arrested on the scene, he requested a toothbrush, which I'm not quite sure why, but it gave the police officers an opportunity to go into his home and inside they found numerous magazines with cutouts of kids and porn, ropes and ligatures, as well as two shotguns, which, yeah... And even more damning the, is the fact that he actually admitted to picking up children in the area of the first three abductions. And Green and Bush also stated that they had actually been fantasising, fantasising about abducting children and tying them up and then they would split work shifts so one of them would always be with the children. Like, I'm sorry, what? Why would you admit that? I mean, I I don't get it, but it does sound, again, very similar to this case. So obviously, Doan and the other detectives believed that they had their killer. I mean, surely, surely these two must be the killers. But, and yes, I'm sorry, there is a but... At the time, without any DNA evidence, polygraphs were the end-all and be-all, which is ridiculous. I mean, in England, you can't even use a polygraph in court. But Bush happily submitted into taking one, saying, quote, I've got nothing to hide, I want to take it, end quote. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but both men passed. They passed the bloody polygraph test. So, Bush's um, wealthy family posted Bond and he was set free back into society, but Green wasn't able to do this as he didn't have, you know, money like Bush's family did, so he remained in prison for his other crimes until he died. And whilst Green was in prison, he had a lover, and this lover, plus one of his cellmates, admitted that Green had made a deathbed confession. Something suspicious, though. A week after Bush's release, Tim King went missing. I mean, it could be a weird coincidence, or it could mean that he was the killer. In 2007, the King family received a call from polygrapher Patrick Coffey. Or Coffey. I'm not quite sure, but I'm going to go with Coffey on this one. Sorry if it's wrong. Um, So Coffey had been at a polygraphy convention in Vegas, and after giving a presentation, a Michigan man walked up to him and started talking. You know, just having a nice chit-chat. And the topic quickly got onto the Oakland County case. Now, Coffey was coincidentally the childhood friend and neighbour of Tim King, and this man, the other polygrapher, became really agitated at the mention of this case, and he said, quote, I tested the guy who confessed to killing your neighbour boy, end quote. The man said that during the unrelated pre-polygraph, an attorney had given up his client and this client was resisting against certain questions. So when this polygrapher started pushing this suspect, pushing him for answers because why was he resisting so much, the man said, quote, because I didn't do this one, but I did the King Boy from Birmingham, end quote. 
and it was at this point that the polygraph man clammed up in front of Coffee and left him with only the clue that the attorney and the suspect were now dead. So obviously, Coffee immediately passed this information on to the King family, who then passed it along to Detective Williams. And Williams started to comb through old polygraph transcripts and eventually stumbled across Bush and Green. And this polygraph had been a pre-polygraph which was held under attorney-client privilege. However, after looking at the polygraphs that were done later, he decided to take them to a third-party expert who took one look at them and was like, um, you know, how did these guys even pass? And Bush was so deceptive on relevant questions and Green should have just flat out failed. So why and how on earth did they pass? Perhaps the police were involved in some sort of cover-up. In fact, in 1978, Christopher Bush was found dead in his home and the official report stated that the death was a suicide and that was done by a rifle. However, with the reopening of the case, investigators both old and new to the case all agreed that the scene was more than suspicious. There was no contact wound where the gun barrel would have been pressed against his head and a lack of blood splatter, not to mention a missing autopsy report. At the time, Kalbfleisch thought this suicide ruling was strange, and it really is when you start to think about it. Like, he was found under the covers of his bed, with a gunshot wound to his head, that was done with a rifle, which meant that he would have had to have been holding the rifle between his knees, whilst also under the covers. It just doesn't really make a lot of sense. In a wardrobe at the scene, police found ropes and on the wall was an image with an eerie resemblance to Mark, one of the victims. And Clavfleisch stated, quote, There was too much stuff there that made it look like I'm the man. This is it. Everything's over. End quote. The officers on the scene alerted the task force who confiscated everything but they didn't even wait for lab results before issuing the statement on this supposed suicide and these lab results were later hidden away. Detective Williams also hid much of what he turned up on Bush from the victim's families, but he does also agree that the crime scene does look staged. In fact, both Williams and Clabfleisch seem to think that Bush was likely killed by somebody else and a lot of people do believe that he could have been killed by another police officer. David Robertson, who is the son of Robert Robertson, the original task force leader, admitted that the car owned by Sloan that was mentioned earlier on had actually been sold to the son of a state police lieutenant. And not only this, but DNA from saliva found on Christine's body was a mitochondrial match to the family. And when pressed for further information about this, Robertson was adamant and he didn't know a name and he later retracted his statement. However, there is even more evidence that it all points towards a police cover-up and it is the testimony of a potential witness called Sebastian. 
and this Sebastian claims to have been in the star as a young boy when Christine was taken. He says that he saw her leave with a magazine in a paper bag and get into the passenger side of a car. And then he said that he saw another person. He said that he saw a police officer who was in uniform who had apparently walked out after and got into the car with Christine, which is dodgy. And Sebastian told his parents about this and even the tip lines and his teacher, but all of his pleas were ignored until eventually detectives came by his house and actually threatened him, saying, quote, If I were you, I'd go home and forget I'd ever seen anything, end quote. And Detective Williams has dismissed this story, saying the sales clerk at the 7-Eleven, who was actually an official witness, never mentioned a police officer, and that witness also saw Christine leave on foot and not by a car. So I guess Sebastian's claims might have just been taken by a pinch of salt. The final theory is that the killer was actually a ring of paedophiles made up of the men mentioned earlier and all led by one mystery man. In 2012, criminologist Michael Arntfield did a case study on these killings and he believed that the prolonged activity and also the fact that the murders occurred during the team killing era does suggest that multiple suspects were involved. And many people do believe that although the same person likely did all the killings, that many were involved in the abduction and monitoring of these children. And, you know, before the internet was really a thing, paedophiles used to form these rings in order to get content. And if we look at the current suspect list, four out of five of these men were convicted paedophiles and several of them confirmed to be, you know know other other paedophiles and whilst I was thinking about this I did think of one point and that was that you know if they were kidnapping the children and having to monitor them that would be like a 24-hour job which could have been difficult to do alone especially if the individual was employed and had to work at the same time it would make sense for them to do it in shifts if you will Antfield does believe that the ring was absolutely made up of bush and green and with one or more of the others and it's believed that they used Sloane's car. It's known that Bush had connections with all four of the other main suspects and he was the one who died under strange circumstances. Antfield, along with many others, feel like this ring likely had a mastermind, possibly someone unknown at the time. Remember the mysterious passenger in Sloane's car, or even maybe if we consider little Sebastian's claim to be real, the police officer. Perhaps this could be the reason that Bush died. Maybe he wanted out and this mastermind would not let him, so instead decided to kill him in order to keep him quiet. But on the other hand, say if it was a dirty cop, then why are Sloan, Lamborghini and Gunnels still remaining silent on the case? I mean, who scared them into keeping all of this quiet? Regardless, I feel like if they were to be put on trial in today's age, I reckon they probably would be doing time for these killings. 
Whilst the Oakland County child killer has only been officially linked to four murders, many investigators, both professional and amateur, have linked him to other cases in the Oakland County area. And one of those cases is the murder of Jane Allen. So now Jane was about 13 or 14 years old and she was kidnapped on August 8th, 1976, whilst she was hitchhiking between Pontiac and Royal Oak, Michigan. And unfortunately, her body was found three days later floating in the Miami River in Miamisburg, Ohio. And her wrists had been bound behind her back with torn strips from a white t-shirt. Now, Jane's body was starting to decompose, which in turn made it nearly impossible to tell whether or not she had been sexually assaulted. But even still, Ohio investigators did learn that Jane had already been dead by the time that she'd been thrown into the river. But investigators also suspected that Jane had died due to carbon monoxide poisoning. Another case thought to be linked is Kimberly King, who, by the way, has no relation to Timothy King. And she, just like all the other victims, came from the suburbs of the greater Detroit area and was also just about 12 years old when she went missing. I think she'd just turned 12. And she went missing on September 16th, 1979. And Kimberly was last seen alive walking in her neighbourhood in Warren, Michigan. The last person to see Kimberly alive was her friend, Annie, and Annie told police that Kimberly had slipped out of Annie's window on September 16th, sometime before midnight, and I think Kimberly had then called her sister, Connie, who lived in Pontiac, and Kimberly claimed to be calling from a payphone near a garimat on Nine Mile Road. Her sister then told Kimberly to go back to Annie's house. And despite a 1983 letter to the Roseville Police Department, Kimberly King's body was never found. This letter reportedly told investigators where her body could be found, and another tantalising clue is the fact that Kimberly's father was a close friend with two of the primary suspects, Sloan and Norberg. And there's many, many theories out there and you can really deep dive into this case and soon find yourself wondering about many possibilities. Although this case is still unsolved, I do have a quick update on this case, just a little one, but Timothy King's family actually produced a documentary titled Decades in Deceit in which they condemned the investigators and prosecutors for how they handled the case. They claimed that they were not taken seriously and the leads they came up with in 2006 were not followed up. And in 2013 as well, an anonymous informant reported a blue AMC gremlin buried in a field in Grand Blanc, Michigan. Police investigated the lead, however, there was not much found and it was pretty common apparently for farmers to just dump their unwanted cars like this. But... I mean, what do you think? I mean, honestly, in my own mind, I just don't know anymore, but I do know that my heart does go out to all these victims and the families involved in this case. It really was such a tragic ending for so many young lives. And that concludes today's episode, and that was a wild one, I will say. 
But thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed and I do hope to have you back for another Primed for Crime episode. But in the meantime, if you are still craving for more true crime cases, then you can head over to my Primed for Crime TikTok where I post small snippets of cases daily. Um, and it's nice to interact with you all, see what cases you want to hear from me. <laughs> so please be vigilant and please stay safe and I will see you in the next case. See you later.